MFs, welcome back. Episode 58. Matthew Walt here with Hustle Like You Broke. Recording on a glorious February morning. A little earlier than usual today, so hopefully my brother Banks isn't touched yet by his breakfast cocktails. Brother Banks, how are you feeling today? Doing all right. Very uh, sober this morning. My daughter went to school on campus for the first time, so I have not had a breakfast cocktail today. So, you know, I have to be okay. sober-minded and uh, aware of what's going on today. First day in a year, basically. A year. Yeah, a year. Wow. An entire year. First day of school. Well, fingers crossed that is smooth. The transition back to some semblance of normalcy takes yeah. place and uh, and things don't shut back down again for you quickly the way they have so many other places. That's what we're hoping. Speaking of this vicious disease, the vaccine rollout is going slower than we had hoped. I'm hearing... An increasing number of people say that large-scale festivals are less and less likely this year. Certainly not the likes of Coachella and Lala, rumor has it. Coachella will not be taking place in October. I am not scooping people. I am not telling them anything official. But these are the things that I'm <laughs> hearing. These are the things that uh, are crossing my mind. You know how we do here. We shoot straight. We tell people what we see, <laughs> what we hear, what we think. Uh, okay. I do believe I am hearing an increasing amount of chatter that for those artists that are nimble, those artists willing to tour without bells and whistles. Those artists can, who can throw something together that is modest and relative in scale, not necessarily 30 plus dates, but 6, 8, 10, 12, 15. There may very well be some activity in the fall. Once things settle down, they can get it up announced on sale, four, six weeks turnaround, whatever. Sign of life. I take that as a good thing. What are your thoughts on that, Brother Hamilton? Well, we just had the first concert of 2021 at the Super Bowl. So <laughs> when you have 30,000 people, even though it's outdoors, I mean, they still had 30,000 people running around there. Half of them had masks, half of them didn't. And that's the beginning. And next thing we have is the Daytona, what, 500? That race car, that race thing that's going to come up pretty soon. They're going to have that packed to the wall, and that's going to be the two defining situation that's going to say, yo, let's get these things going. Plus they got the vaccine going around to whoever wants it in theory. So even though you had to be 65 up, but they still giving it to whoever wants it. Everybody's um, giving it. <laughs> exactly. So all this, I mean, I feel not that I feel my prediction is we're going to get started back by summer and then we'll keep moving thereafter. But those, the, the Super Bowl was the first one. The Daytona 500, the second one, and then moving after that. And then you already see they already have people going to basketball games, you know, and in, in, in different capacities. You know, California can't be the 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 catalyst saying what's going to happen because we, we still shut down, basically. Um, so everywhere else is wide open. So 
Well, yeah, we're gonna be. Back. I like the way you're talking, but I think what you mean is parts of the Midwest and the Deep South are wide open. I'm not sure that's indicative of the rest of the country, but hey, I, I mean, I I do believe there will be some events in the summertime. Whether that things are wide open, whether there is full size capacity, uh, you know, amps and what have you, we'll see. I, I'm happy to go with that. You did just reference. The Super Bowl, I was going to bring that up briefly before we bring out today's guest. Uh, I should point out, unfortunately, Sister Dallas is not with us today. Uh, We're always sad uh, when she can't be a part of this, but uh, so be it. She lives in Miami, Florida, as everybody knows. I was going to ask her exactly. I was going to ask her, (laughs) what's the story on Rolling Loud, which is still on the books for May 789? It's happening. They're going to do it. <laughs> They're going to do Coachella's it. Coachella's going to happen. They're going to yeah. recount. They're going to backtrack. They're going to bring this shit out. Coachella's happening. Okay, no, well, not, you not Coachella. Hear- <laughs> it's going to happen. They need that money. Yeah, it's well, going to happen. Kyle, we're going to put a little wager on that one day real soon. You hear 50 bucks. Here, guest. 50 bucks? Okay. 50 done bucks. and done. Dal- mm. Banks, you want in? I'm on it. Not going right. to happen. Okay. April? Get it. April? 50? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. no, no. April's, they've already said April's not going to happen. I would say it's going to happen this year, probably fall like it was last year. Supposedly. And I'm going to say no. I'm going to say April 50 22, 50 bucks. De- Banks, you want in? You want oh, action? Definitely April 22. No. April 22. Banks and I are at 50 each. Kyle, that's 100 to you. And right. uh, there and it I is. Our listeners, November ish, October, November, we have Coachella in, in, I don't, in California. Uh, okay, I'm yeah. going with no. Oh, but <laughs> I'm, I'm going with no. Not going to happen. So you did reference the Super Bowl, though. I do want to acknowledge real quick, and I don't want to talk about this at length, uh, but I do want to acknowledge what they managed to put together in light of COVID, in light of the restrictions. It was a spectacle. They pulled it off. Much respect to Jesse Collins and his team who executive produced it. We all know Jesse. Much respect to DPS for handling the the production. Big, big shout out to good friend of the program, someone we all love dearly, Charm LaDonna, who choreographed the whole thing. Yay, Charm. Charm. Love you, Charm. Love your team. (laughs) Alex, shout out to you. Haven't seen you from for a while now, but great people. So appreciate all you. The fact that I found the weekend himself to be boring is unfortunate. But here's what I think. Final assessment, my opinion. opinion, only my opinion. I think his music is fun. I think it's catchy. I think it's dancey. I think it's light and airy and I enjoy it. But it's not anthemic, it lacks edge, and it doesn't energize a television audience that doesn't otherwise know who he is. Especially when you watch the mix out with ambient mics. <laughs> well, so you we, can't even so he's already soft and airy, and to add a whole bunch of other thirty plus thousand people's air to him that's louder than him didn't make it any better. You could hardly well, hear him. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It, actually, two. First of all, I read afterwards that people who spell his name correctly 
thought it was great. People who think it spells like what falls at the end of the week thought it was terrible. And really all that matters. Sure, the Super Bowl is supposed to be a spectacle. We're all supposed to love whatever's going on for the amount of money that gets spent. But Pepsi gets their eyeballs. It is what it is. He puts his tour on sale and... And really, well, that's that's my other thing. He put his tour on sale this week, before, last week. Before the listeners. Super Bowl. <laughs> and I was talking to a good friend, Michelle Bernstein, who is a marketing executive, used to be at WME, just started Mitchie B Marketing. Shout out to Mitchie. I think she is fantastic. She is handling the on sales. She is handling the marketing for that tour. And as she's telling me the counts are coming in, they're looking good. All I could think is how fucking cool is it to be talking about ticket counts, mm. to be talking about a tour that's actually likely to play. Yes. It doesn't start until January of 22, but it is actually likely to happen in its entirety without postponement, without question of whether or not they're going to carry it off this time. That to me is the best sign of life I've seen. I'm really fucking happy about that. So, and, and how great would it be to know what your entire 22 looks like right now? I am envious of that. I got to be honest. Hmm. I am super happy for, for, for Mitchie, for the weekend, for all of those guys and uh, and and I'm looking forward to a strong 22. So there it is. Moving on today on the podcast, we have another great guest continuing a recent trend. I've been super pumped about the guests we've had recently. We've had tour managers Angie Warner and Jerome Crooks. We've had designer Sunarathier. We had headcounts Christina Rains, production manager Stu Burke. We had Jen Kellogg from Showmakers. We had the guys from Backline.care, Hyman Zach, musical designer Kevin Antunes. I could keep going. For those who are new to the program today, go back and check the catalog because we've been having a blast. And joining us on the bus today is actually our first educator. We talk about education all the time. Today, we have our first actual educator. <laughs> of the music business. He is a 16-year faculty member from the Bandier program, which I may have said incorrectly. He can feel free to correct me. Uh, but he works at Syracuse University, Dr. Alf Osterley, our, only our second doctor on the program. Clearly, that makes him much smarter and more educated than I he is either from upstate New York or else he went there for college and never left. He teaches recorded music, live music, social media strategy, and data within the industry. Ulf, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us on the bus today. One more thing I'd be remiss if I did not point out. Ulf has 135,000 TikTok followers. So this man has a presence of his own not to be overlooked, ill-considered, or otherwise. Ulf, thanks for being with us. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Happy to be here. And uh, I'm surprised I'm only the second doctor to have uh, a spot on the show. I mean, there's a few out there in the biz. And, uh, you know, it's a very different perspective, I think, talking to somebody who willingly spends 10 or 11 years going to college. 
<laughs> because that's what I did. Yes, you and did. Yeah. It, it was one of those things that I'd never planned on being an educator. I'd never planned on spending as much of my life on a college campus as I have. Um, but it's really been my calling card and sort of defined who I am and my role that I've gotten to play over the years within the music space. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited to, to be uh, at least a, a stepping stone along the path of so many students that have come through and made a difference, you know, working in music. And so, you know, for me, um, music was never even my initial path. I didn't go to school to study the music business. I went to school because I wanted to be an athletic trainer. I wanted to work with sports. And this was back when, you know, Warp Tour still had the skateboarders and Moto X guys. And, you know, the plan was like, let's see if I can find a way onto Warp Tour to fix the, uh, the athletes when they break themselves. I'll find myself a snowboarding tour in the winter and, you know, be the athletic trainer for those. Um, but that wasn't the path I actually walked. I mean, I got the degree in it, but I was working in radio. I was working in music television as uh, an undergrad student and decided – you know, I needed a degree to say something related to media. And so I went to Syracuse for a year for a master's. And so that, let's, yeah, go. Well, well let, let's back up and let's talk a little bit about that and what led you to, to this path. Because, you know, we should set up and establish for our audience quickly. You didn't go straight into education. You operated your own small record label. You have worked in artist management. You had a band, uh, a punk band for some time. You do have some history in radio, in programming, as well as hosting your own specialty show. Yep. So let's start there before we get into Syracuse and what you've done, you know, upon arrival on campus and, and all of that. Please. Sure. So, you know, I think anytime that you have a little bit of an entrepreneurial thread that's been woven into you. You've got to try everything. And I grew up and cut my teeth in the world of college radio. And this was at, at WSUC in, in Cortland, New York. So upstate New York, you know, really rural type area. And, you know, I had one actual one professor at Syracuse University when I was a master's student say that SUNY Cortland was where the C students went to try to just say they got a degree. Because it wasn't like a really rigorous uh, academic program there. I mean, the athletic tr pro athletic training program was good, but um, it wasn't Harvard. It wasn't USC. It wasn't, you know, and so it was a state school. Um, but working in radio there really exposed me to what it was like to see and hear artists before they really broke. Because back then, this is the mid-1990s. Uh, and late 1990s, college radio mattered at that point. And the argument can be made that it's not as impactful today. Uh, but back then, it was important. And so fast forward to the, my commercial specialty show. I had, uh, you know, a connection in town in Syracuse. And I knew he was new to Syracuse. He was the program director, music director for the local rock radio station. And at that time, I'm managing bands. And so you know, what do you do when you're managing artists? You need to be in the conversation with anyone that you can who might be able to help you with building your artist and getting them to the next uh, next level. And so we got together, had lunch, 
And he knew about my radio history and said on the spot, you know, do you want to do a commercial specialty show? And, you know, I'd been out of radio for a number of years at that point and was really dying to get back because I love the format. I love having that platform where you can talk about what you want to talk about, play the music you want to play. And, you know, I said, I'll do the show. I'll take it over under one condition, one well, two conditions. One, I'm not filling out an employment, you know, like I'm not going to submit my hours, two hours a week at just more than minimum wage. Like, let me keep the music, you know, all promo stuff that comes in. Mm. And he's like, done. And I said, second condition is I get to play what I want. And he said, done. So it was, uh, you know, an indie rock show. And, you know, I remember you know, Phoenix 1901, I think I was the first person in all of central New York to play that song when it first came out. And, you know, I got the opportunity to bring the station with me to South by Southwest for a number of years and set up a little mobile studio uh, right in downtown Austin. And I'd bring artists that would come through and, you know, we'd record interviews. They'd go up to the, uh, the website and I'd play them on the show. And it was fantastic. And that free reign is something that most people don't get, especially in radio. And Ooh. I loved it. So took on, you know, a couple of years worth of that. Outside okay. of that, you know, managing artists, um, you know, that's always an adventure, especially when you get uh, one artist in particular, this guy, Mike Powell. Name's not going to ring a bell for most people. Uh, he was a former professional lacrosse player, arguably the best lacrosse player to have ever played the game hmm. quit at the pinnacle of his career because he wanted to create music, Just write songs, put out records tour. And he's, you know, like a modern folk Americana type artist. So there's certainly a ceiling on, you know, the size of his audience, but being able to take him and grow him from, you know, the small shows he was playing regionally to getting out and touring a little bit, uh, a little bit further from the hometown and you know, recording a couple of live records with him, doing some studio EPs with him. Uh, it was nice to really have that direction and someone who's willing to listen to where you could go. So I love those types of projects because that allows me to flex my creative muscle a little bit more than what we totally can do in academia. Okay. So then what then, having had that taste of the artist management, you know, being on the road, going to conferences south by, working with artists, interviewing artists there, what have, what have you. What, what then made you decide that you wanted to settle down in Syracuse, work for the university, and teach about the business? Part of it was, was actually um, September 11th, 2001, you know, because I'd finished my master's degree in August of 2001. And that was a one-year program. It was media management. So half the coursework was in communications and I focused everything on the music business. The other half were courses in um, the school of management. So basically half of an MBA. And I said, you know, one-year master's degree, it says I'm, I'm at least qualified to some degree to work in music. And I'll go to New York, work for a label and do some marketing down there. Um, I was dating a classmate at the time who I ended up marrying uh, she was going to go down and work for the NHL. And I thought, this is great. We got sports. We got music. New York is the place to be. <laughs> and then September 11th happened and she backed out. She said, I'm not, I'm not going. 
that's really what led me into the PhD. Because again, I was in Syracuse and Syracuse is not a huge place. You know, it's a college town. A lot of artists love to skip over Syracuse because you can play Buffalo, you can go to Albany and then head out to Boston, you know, or you're playing Rochester and maybe Ithaca and not Syracuse. So, you know, it's a B or a C level market and um, there's not as much opportunity here. I don't think there's any music publishers in town. You know, there's a couple small indie labels, there's venues, but there isn't a ton of music business here outside of the university. And so it was really this opportunity for me to just stick around and spend more time in school. Figuring out life, you know, after September 11th was a big part of that. And, um, you know, when I started my label, it was really, I took $6,000 of my student loan money, which I don't know that I should admit, but I mean, that's, that's how you funded things. Like, you know, when you've got this idea that you have to put out some records, um, you know, you really only have one record that you're going to put out with $6,000. You know, we spent a couple thousand dollars in the studio, pressed up a couple thousand records. And it was, you know, the story, you sell them out of the back of the car, you sell them at the shows, you, you know, hustle a little bit. Uh, this is when satellite radio was really starting to take off. And mm. working in college radio, I knew how you can build out a little bit of a campaign there, met a few people. All of a sudden, this first band is like one of those 20 bands you need to know. Uh, on satellite and, you know, with one gatekeeper, we had national exposure. Hmm. And so we sold a couple thousand records, pretty much all cash. And that led me to just put out a few more records, um, you know, made tons of mistakes along the way. Hmm. Uh, and, and that's the, the best part about teaching now is I can take those mistakes that I learned firsthand and show why that wasn't a good move or what the alternate move could have been, or at least have the issues and present them to a class and say, how would you handle this particular scenario? And, you know, that, that really has kept me engaged in education in a big way because, you know, at, at the end of the day, the business is going to change. By the time a student comes in as a freshman and they leave as a senior, things have, have absolutely shifted. But mm -hmm. do they have the skills to adapt to the reality that they're stepping into with their job because I, okay. we, none of us were expecting this pandemic. Hmm. And so how do you, how do you move and how do you shift uh, to be productive in the area that you want to work when live has been pretty much shut down? Okay. Okay. So I want to acknowledge I've been to Syracuse a couple of times that it is very much a college town. Um, you're right. I mean, I, as a touring agent, once upon a time, who booked club tours for a number of years. Rochester was definitely more of a music town. You know, you'd want to play Water Street Music Hall and what have you. Um, Syracuse did not have any such equivalent venue. I've since done a couple of shows in the Carrier Dome, um, which is, of course, arena level. Um, and, and that's it. I mean, it's a football stadium. It's, it's fucking huge. Um, but it is very much a small town. Dinosaur barbecue is one of my favorite things about it. Um, 
<laughs> Which what? is funny because everyone everyone will note that because what else is there? You know, there is nothing else. <laughs> and, and, right. Well, exactly. And there's a dinosaur in Buffalo and in Rochester. At least there used to be yep, in and, all of those markets. Um, but but delicious and and well worth it. And and if you're in Cooperstown, actually, what I did was a buddy and I went out to the, one of the shows I did at the Carrier Dome. We stopped in Cooperstown at the Hall of Fame on the way home. So we made a nice weekend of it. It was a good time. But my first question is, it, I wasn't clear if you're suggesting that students of yours that are going to be listening to the program should take some of their student loan money and put out a record, <laughs> or if you're not suggesting that's a good idea. Because it sounded like it was a good one for you in retrospect. The decisions that I've made in life are not the decisions that most people should make. <laughs> I am I'm very much a high-risk, high-reward type of individual. And that, that cuts across all that I do. Um, you know, I, I'm an athlete. I'm still competing uh, nationally. I, I fill my days with more than I probably should. Um, the work-life balance does not exist in my life. So there's a lot of things that I do that I tell others not to do. But I also will not give up the habits that I have. No guts, no glory, kids. <laughs> Sounds to me like you should do it. I'm just saying. All right, man. <laughs> no, no, no. Let, let me qualify that. I'm just busting balls here is all I'm doing. Although, if you really truly believe in it and are willing to invest in it and go all the way, there is a lot to be learned for it. That is what I will say. Mm -hmm. Believe in the project that you cannot say no to. You know, and that was, that was the thing for me. Okay. With this first band that I worked with. It was a, a modern rock band, uh, female fronted. And I, I love female rock vocals. Just mm. that always stood out for me. And so, you know, uh, I'd spent a little time working for the syndicate. You know, this was early on in, in the mm. syndicate's existence. And I was a central New York rep, a lot of grassroots marketing, and then day of show support for the major bands that would come through. And uh, I was working with this band Stage that was on Maverick Records at the time. And this band came up to me. They saw that I was working with with the headliner and uh, they said, we're a local band. Can you come check us out? And that was this band. And I was like, sure, you know, but that happened 50, 70 times before. So really paid them no attention. The next time Stage comes through Syracuse, I'm there working. Yeah, the band comes back up. They're like, hey, we saw you last time. Can we just go get, you know, get lunch? And I distinctly recall the bassist pulling out a dollar bill from his wallet and writing his email address in Sharpie on the dollar bill because he knew that I wasn't going to throw that away. And so I ended up, you know, emailing him and we got lunch and uh, he passed on the demo and I, I loved what I heard. So, you know, I, I couldn't stop listening to that poorly produced demo. And I heard <laughs> the magic in a song. And I said, if we get them in a studio you know, this can be something. And, you know, we did all right with it. Well, clearly they needed Kyle Hamilton to mix it is what I heard just then. Yep. But I, I had to do with that. I heard he said it was poorly. It was terrible. I said he needed you, not uh, that you uh, did okay, do it. Uh, okay. I thought you said that I was part of saying his stuff was terrible. No, I was giggling at what he said. <laughs> so, so moving away from that, uh, Syracuse does have a, a well-recognized program, but just out of curious, curiosity, you know, 
What do you say to students that are looking at Syracuse, they're looking at Berkeley, they're looking at Belmont, they're looking at USC? It's a a role that I've played for most of my career in talking with prospective students. And I absolutely believe in the program that we've built here at Syracuse. And it's a great program for some students. It's not a great program for every student. And that's the thing about college. Uh, You've got to find a location where you feel most empowered to study, to really stretch your comfort zone out a little bit more. Uh, And it's got to be in an environment, an an environment, I mean, like the city or the location that you can see yourself living for four years. So there are plenty of questions with students maybe that are, are uh, high school juniors or seniors from the Northeast. And they're saying, I'm looking at Berkeley, NYU, or Syracuse. And there are different strengths for different programs. Um, you know, the, the music business college degree program, uh, co- you know, it's a small group of us. There, there's not that many programs that are truly out there. And so, you know, if somebody wants a big city experience, NYU, they do fantastic work. I think what we've excelled at are giving students the opportunities to explore the music business in several locations. We've got a campus in London. We've got a campus in Los Angeles. We've had students study in Nashville before. Um, We had our first international trip uh, just prior to COVID where we took a handful of students through Asia. And, you know, this is a a 10 or 14 day program where they were out there meeting with executives from Tencent and other companies uh, throughout. um, It was Japan and South Korea. And so, you know, those types of experiences are not presented everywhere. I think we also have a pretty good alumni network and we are in the, the new house school right now. And the, the joke is the new house mafia, you know, always looks out for each other because the media industry is populated by folks that have come through Syracuse. People like Rob Light at CAA, Syracuse alum. You know, if we look at some of the alums that we have from our program, Drew Taggart from the Chainsmokers was one of our students. Ooh. Um, Olivia Radinsky, who's doing digital for Miley Cyrus right now. She was one of our students. Michael George, who is managing Martin Garrix, one of our students. So, you know, we can look to every every part of the business. And we've got students that have come through our program and have gone into the area of business they want to work. So our employment rate has been really high. And we've focused on that. So that's that's one of the sell points for us because we do a lot of career exploration, uh, mentorship with the students that have come through our program prior. And we actually build out what we call bandier families. So on campus, we've got a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, you're together. But then there's also in that family, somebody who graduated last year, somebody who graduated two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. So now we have this, uh, you know, it's a small network of connections that you are tied to from day one on campus. All right. So I want to ask a similar question, but I want you to give me a different answer. What do you say to people that want to go to college and be in music business, but don't think they want to go to music business school or 
don't want to go to college at all, just want to go right into the business. What What is the pitch to them to say, this is why you should go to college and study music business at Syracuse or otherwise? I actually wouldn't pitch them to go to college. I think there are plenty of paths that people can take that don't include a four-year degree. Cool. And it really will depend on the area of the business that you want to work in. You know, there are, uh, there are plenty of uh, jobs that you could go to trade school for. If, if you're going to be on the road, you know, you think Coachella is going to happen. Well, you're going to need some electricians that are working at Coachella. <laughs> you know, good. you're not, you're not learning that okay. uh, at Syracuse University. You know, right. there's something to be said about getting a college experience over two years at a community college, really figuring out, is this what I want to do? And then dive in. There's a lot to be said about somebody taking a few gap years even before considering college. Mm. And maybe you are going to go out on the road and it's not going to be the most glamorous job, but you are going to learn on the job from everybody that you surround yourself with. So I, I think college is one pathway to a career, but it's not every pathway to a career in this business. And we have to recognize that because there are so many different types of roles that people will play in every sector of the music business. Okay. So, so let's dive into the curriculum of a music business program at a college and, and feel free to tell us a little bit about campus radio. You obviously have experience there, uh, campus record labels, which often overlap the music business program, but sometimes function independently as well. Likewise with campus programming, which is the live side, you know, the events that students bring to campus. I've done a lot of buying and selling of that myself. We actually did an episode, which is not part of our traditional uh, catalog where we spoke to a group of students at the University of Texas, um, and, we're, and we're talking to other universities about uh, similar programs with them. So tell us about that experience. And, and honestly, I, I'm going to be totally blunt. Like My biggest criticism of music business programs in general is they emphasize you know, labels, publishing, accounting you know, performance, composing, but there's very little emphasis on live. And so tell us first about the stations, the labels, et cetera, sure. and then talk to us about the programs themselves. So I'll speak to Syracuse specifically uh, to start. Uh, we do have many extracurricular opportunities for all of the students to build skills outside of the classroom. And we do have three campus radio stations you know, one of them is a top 40 pop station. Uh, one of them is your traditional free format block booking of, you know, college radio shows where you might have a hardcore show and then a hip hop show and then a folk show, you know. So very, very wide open there. And then we have uh, this 50,000 watt. Uh, it's, right now it's a jazz station, but that format I do expect will change in the coming years because we at, at the Newhouse School are now absorbing that radio program into uh, sort of the, the walls of our facilities. And that's going to give students more hands-on opportunity, whether it's in a classroom experience or extracurricularly. So radio, three stations on campus, uh, that's generally more than most will have. We've had two record labels on campus, one that was focused on student projects 
one that was focused on signing outside talent and, you know, Marshall Street Records and Syracuse University Recordings. Uh, they fall under the umbrella of the Orange Music Group. And there's been a live component to that as well. So those experiences uh, generally are, you know, uh, 15, 20, 30 students that will be a part of those particular projects. A little bit more focused than, um, than some. The campus programming, I mean, this is where, where having the Carrier Dome really helps us stand out. Because the students are running our campus programming board and they're booking the talent from comedians to films to musicians. And we have a, uh, a music festival that happens in the fall. We have a music festival that happens in the spring. So, you know, the students are the ones programming that. And that's where we can see a lot of the live experience come into play from the standpoint of building the stages, the barricades, you know, catering coming through, security. They're a part of every step. You know, the, the Carrier Dome itself is massively expensive to get into, to put on a show. But where they do the outdoor festival, I mean, it's a, a big field and parking lot. So you're building everything, the entire infrastructure. And students are involved in all of that. Those really help us accentuate what we do in the classroom. Because you're right, you know, with the, the basic structure of the curriculum, we've got a class that's on labels and publishers. We've got a class that's on the live music business and branded entertainment. We've got a class that focuses on social media strategy and, uh, you know, data. So really diving deep into the numbers and looking for trends. We've got a class that's focused on emerging technologies. So what's coming up next with virtual reality, augmented reality, um, you know, talking about cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain contracts, you know, and these are the, the big ideas that we're not truly, we haven't truly embraced in the business just yet. We flirted with ideas, you know, uh, artificial intelligence creating music. You know, Francois Paget from uh, was at, at Sony, now at Spotify, you know, has spent a lot of time in his career building out, you know, the, the machine learning to try to create songs. And is that going to replace the songwriter? No, it's not. Could machine learning help a songwriter direct them down a path that they might want to? Perhaps. So these types of um, topics, like that's a, a class that I really love because it's, it's not traditional. But outside of that, yes, the accounting, it's important to know numbers. You, you know, budgeting is huge in every aspect. So there's, there's a lot of those traditional classes that we've got as well. So my biggest hang up that I've talked a lot about over time is that, you know, what most people know of the live entertainment field and the people that work within it is the ragtag, middle-aged, white dude dressed in black that puts us in a mic stand down stage center in the middle of the show or hands a guitar to the guitar player, you know, as he runs on and off the stage. And that's it. And even in the public messaging that's out there, even in the messaging that's been out there during COVID, 
it, the talk is like we're all just a band of fucking gypsies. Like we're a bunch of fucking carnies. Like we work for the rodeo. And in the absence of, you know, uh, you know, touring work, we need to go to Home Depot to find employment because we have no skills, which, of course, I think is fucking bullshit. You know, I'm a firm believer that we are a technology business. And and I I suppose I should tell our audience now that Ulf and I know each other because we both work with the Showmakers organization, which is Jim Digby, who's been on the program a couple times, Jen Kellogg, who's also been on the program. Um, and you know, we, we talk about these things, like how do we reshape the perception of the industry? So from an educator standpoint, how do we do that? And how do we introduce more high level ideas like XR, as you refer, uh, referenced moments ago, and, and other ways of introducing technology into the live entertainment curriculum to elevate the discourse and get people talking about the prestige of working in the live touring space? Some of it will come via conferences, you know, and, and looking at what the future of uh, leadership looks like in these particular areas. And, you know, through Showmakers, uh, we had a presentation at NAMM's Believe in Music Week this year that talked about the future of leadership in live music. Uh, I'm doing a very similar talk coming up with the Music and Entertainment Industry Educators Association. So now it's an opportunity to talk to those educators about what we need to look at. And, you know, I think there's a lot of value in teaching the teacher. And so for those individuals that have some experience in a particular area, it is important to show the best practices and where we can go so that we're not teaching music business 19, you know, 95 or 2005 or 2015, because those were all different eras. And, you know, things right now do change so quickly that having those resources on hand for professors that maybe aren't as ambitious with their refreshing of content every single year, you got to make it easy for them. And so that's one thing I'm hoping to do via Showmakers is to provide some content for music business educators at the university level, the high school level, but then also at the continuing education level. Because I think this perception of individuals that are working on the road being a bunch of carnies is the furthest thing from the truth. And maybe that's because of the position that I sit in seeing the folks that are on the road. Maybe it's the the public that has a different perception. But as somebody who, for back of a letter, lack of a better term, you know, sees how the sausage is made, um, you know that there are, are people that are uh, – they've got such skill that most of the general population is never going to come close to doing that. So – you know, building these resources um, on a continuing education side for those tour professionals uh, is also high on my list of what I'd like to do, because that also will bring a very public face to the skills that everyone has who's responsible for making these shows the best part of everyone's summer. And, and that's the thing. You can talk to anyone out there. You know, they're going to have that one concert experience over the summer that was like the best night of insert whatever year. Mm -hmm. Who made that happen? The artist is the, the face of that. 
But the hundreds of people that surround that event, they're the ones that really helped make this possible. Okay. So let's jump into Mia. Why don't you tell us what Mia is, what it stands for, so I don't butcher the acronym itself, <laughs> what they do, and and what are their organizational objectives? So Mia has been around for over 40 years, and it's the Music and Entertainment Industry Educators Association. And this was an organization that pulled together the academic programs from across uh, North America. And then now over the last few years, it's gone international where we've got a pretty sizable contingent in Australia and uh, through Europe as well. We as an organization will produce the MIA Summit every year, which is an academic forum for people to share their research. Because if you're looking at academic programs, uh, tenure track professors need to produce original research. If you don't, they're going to fire you, they being the university. And there's a bit of a rub there because I don't know that many people read the academic research and can apply it to how the business is operating because the questions asked in most research um, studies are very, very narrow and they're not applicable to a whole lot. So there is a bit of a disconnect between doing research that will apply to the classes you're teaching and doing research for you to get a journal published. Hmm. Mia sort of fits in between those because we do have an academic journal and it is a forum for tenure track professors to have their research published. We've got our summit, which is a, a you know public uh, experience for people to present their research as well. Outside of that, we have been pulling together Mia meets, which are fairly regular, um, you know, open conversations on different topics, whether it's putting together an online festival or, um, you know, the future of leadership in live music, or uh, I did a, a presentation on TikTok and we can circle back to TikTok later. Um, you know, just really understanding the different components and how they fit into what we are teaching. So it's an educators association is what it boils down to. There are partnerships with certain organizations. So they, they, you know, we work with Chartmetric a little bit because they will help us with some of the data and access to data in the music space, which is what we need to show in the classroom. So um, I wish we were a little bit more active in terms of producing larger events uh, outside of the summit. You know, I would like to see you know, some international conferences happen because of our international contingent. But um, when we need to reach out to every one of the music business programs, Mia has connections with just about all of them. Okay. So we talk about what's happening on campus. We talk about what's happening in the classroom, the extracurricular offerings. Let's talk a little bit about creating pipelines to get people on the road. I, I'm a big advocate, as, as you and I have talked about before, of creating co-op type programs that can put people on tour. Um, if there were more schools doing like Northeastern University does, where people mm -hmm. can spend a semester and go get a job. And sure, they could get a job at an agency, but that's still a corporate job. Sure, they could get a job at a label, but that's not live. I'm talking about how we create a pipeline to put people on the road. 
on tour. They could be Chris and Kyle's, you know, A3. They could be, you know, uh, you know, lighting tech. You know, work again. They could work in a high tech space, not just as the, you know, production assistants grunt or what have you. You know, how do we create viable, valuable pipeline opportunities? I think the first step there is to identify the skill set needed for the different roles. Because you can't place a student into a situation that seems like it's going to be a good idea for them. They love the idea of being on the road, but they don't have the skills. Because then for their mentor or the crew they're working with, they're a little bit more dead weight. And it's it's tough to have to get everything done that you need to a day of show while also managing somebody who is not performing at the same level as all the peers. Oftentimes, interns um, uh, don't have the skill just yet. That's why they're interning. So at least having, whether it's a certificate or a, a list of competencies that they've been able to illustrate prior to going on tour, I think that's a great first step. But then finding who's doing the hiring and making sure that a pipeline does exist, whether it's through an organization like MIA or Showmakers or Diversify the Stage or you know another organization that's looking to match those who are looking for a job, internship, and those that have roles to fill while we're on the road. Uh, there isn't a seamless pipeline yet. Organizations are trying, and I do hope we see at least a central clearinghouse you know, whether it's, you know, never famous and diversify the stage and, you know, two or three other organizations coming together and saying, this is our process. There needs to be one place that uh, can be a shared resource, I think. Well, it's interesting you say that because the Even Network is also another organization. Sooner's a part of that. Jerome Crooks is a hand of that. Jerome has a hand in Never Famous. You know, there's definitely a lot of overlap. I'm, I'm, I don't know that one pipeline is achievable, <laughs> but I, yeah. well, it may or may not be the answer, but I don't know if it's even achievable. Uh, but, but I know Showmakers also has an interest in trying to do that. Again, you and I have had these conversations with those guys. Speak to that a little bit. And then I want to actually turn it over to Kyle and Chris, who actually did study something relating to either audio or music business or what have you in college, which again, makes them more educated in the way music business colleges work than I am. So please. I have, I have a quick question statement with regards to the pipeline um, that you have with the, you know, the, the new students per se. Mm -hmm. um, how ready are they? Because I don't know about your particular um, curriculum, but a lot of these students come out thinking that they're a hundred percent tour ready. Um, they, they say they're certified on this, they're certified on that, but the certification goes back to okay, you're certified on old gear, yeah, not on the current gear. So, and technically, you come out as a dead weight. And then you have to kind of re-educate them or retrain them for what's current. It's like, okay, is there a way to get that certification thought pattern out of their head so they come out thinking that they're they're almighty and ready to go and 100% wrong and can be a complete 
you know, uh, liability for, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. The case, you know, that's, that's absolutely the case. And, and as technology continues to evolve, you know, the universities aren't going to update everything to the latest gear every single year, but the tours very well, uh, may be doing that. And no, so, but, but what I want to say is maybe let we should get away from, see, it's all about the verbiage to, oh, I'm certified this, I'm certified that. Stop talking about that certification shit. Just say, yo, I know just enough to be dangerous <laughs> or or I know or I know enough to have a, a conversation with you where you say this, that and the third. We're, we're speaking the same language. But the certification point makes these kids think that they're on a different tier than they necessarily are. I think we're almost saying the same thing here in the sense that you, you know enough to be dangerous that's good. You don't know anything at all. That's not good. Well, I'm not, so, saying this, I'm not saying to say that they don't know anything at all, but with the, the, the certification chip on their shoulder gives them, the, they feel like they have a right of patent. Oh, I know what I'm doing. Step well, back. Well, wait a second. Let, let me jump in and try and smooth this over a little bit. Kyle, I love the negativity. Um, and you've it's said- in your, negative. In, in, it's in, what I'm experienced. You've, well, and you have said in past episodes <laughs> that, that you don't want to end, mentor anybody that isn't at such a level already that they're ready to receive. But, but let me say, I, I respect for where you're coming from and I don't disagree. I think what I'm trying to ask Ulf, and I think what he's trying to say to us is in establishing that pipeline that gives people an eye-opening experience, they then realize some of the things that they don't know yet. And 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 that per, by creating a cycle that you can perpetuate of getting people to have these eye-popping, eye-opening experiences, they will realize that certification is important and we do need more certification, but we also need people to see that that certification plus on-the-job practical experience is what gets them prepared to have the job job and not just the certificate itself. Oh, yeah, yes. And, and I, I, this is... We have three three required internships. You cannot graduate from our program unless you have three internships. Okay. And so one student, they might go into artist management for a summer. And maybe they don't like it. Mm -hmm. So then they try music publishing. And maybe mm -hmm. they're, they're okay with it, but still not really what they're passionate about. Then they go and they intern for uh, a booking agent. Oh, I like live. You don't want them then saying, I'm going to go and work on tour lighting. They don't mm -hmm. have any, they've got three internships. They right. like live, but there's nothing that will show that they have some competence working with the gear or the cadence of what a day looks like or a week looks like or what a summer looks like. We had, you know, one student, um, I think our first student to do a full live internship, uh, she went out on Warp Tour and there were 21 people on her bus. Mm -hmm. You know, Whoa, and, that's, oh, a, that's, that's overkill. That's too slave, much. Yeah. That's, that's slave shit. I mean, that's not a bus. That's exactly what it was. I mean, you, you basically, not everyone had a, like a bunk bed here. 
And so illegal, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's not even funny. That is illegal. That's fucking dangerous. (laughs) But go ahead. (laughs) The point being, though, like, you know, she dove right in there, wasn't ready for the exact cadence. And it took her several weeks to see what she needed to do to be ready Mm -hmm. day in and day out. And I, I think that's where I come from with certification of some sort. You know, well, can- I, 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 I would just diving in, cut you off, um, not on, on purpose, but I went to school too. I went to LA Recording, so I did get my certificate. So I was one of those students. But when I got put in a position where I need to learn stuff, I'm not saying yes, I'm certified. This, I'm that. I'm, sometimes it's more you, you, you learn more, or you retain, but just sit back in the cut and just see what's going on. The kids now, they're so, not to say arrogant with it, but they're arrogant with it. Like, I know this, 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 this. Okay, well, fine, we'll do it. Mm-hmm. And then it's a showstopper. You see what I'm saying? As oh, a yeah. difference between me, when I can't, I just say, okay, show me your way. Show me how, how you guys maneuver. And I'm sure Chris was the same way. You know, yes, I knew what I knew, but... I'm I'm here to be your second or your third. So I'm gonna follow how I'm gonna follow the way that you maneuver and take some things from me that may make sense and like things that don't make sense, like now nah, I'm cool or how that works with my workflow. But you know, I'm gonna sit back and just let you drive and, and figure it out from there. But a lot of kids now they give me the keys. I got the wheel and it doesn't always turn out too well. Let me drive the boat. <laughs> so wait a second. Okay, so I, I want to let Chris jump in here, but I also want to go back to the the primary question to Ulf, which was more about creating that pipeline and getting more of those young people out on the road to get that eye-popping experience. I mean, based on the four examples you just gave us and based on the criteria of the three internships, I'm still not hearing that there are enough kids that are getting any kind of live a practical experience in a live touring context. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. Most college programs aren't set up for mm-hmm. prepping people for the road. Mm-hmm. Okay. There, it's the sort of festival experience that happens here, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the shows that are going to happen on campus. Those are the production experiences. There are groups where you can actually get a job if you want to be in the technical field, uh, events and technical services on campus. They take tons of students. It's a paid position and you're doing everything from stage build, sound, lights, uh, projection, you know, all of these positions that will have skills that will help you in the live setting. But it could be for a guest lecture. It could be for a film screening. It could be for the concert. It could be for but you know, any number. Yeah, any it's- number of events that happen on campus. But yeah, the the, the fact is most schools, unless you own your own venue or have a relationship with a venue, they're not teaching the technical skills in the club or on tour. So should Syracuse be opening a venue or getting kids working at venues in town or something like that? So are you doing th- that? They, they will intern at venues in town. And, okay. you know, that's, that's something that uh, has regularly happened since I've been here. But again, the number of venues in town is small relative to most other cities. This isn't Nashville, you know? Right. So you might have a show, you know, on a Tuesday and then one on a Saturday and that's it. And 
you know, if Tuesday night you've got a class conflict, that means you're only working Saturday. And, you know, so there's limited experience with that. Um, would Syracuse benefit from having a venue? Uh, I absolutely think so. I've been kind of beating that drum for a little while. There, I think it would be great for us to have that as a learning laboratory. Doesn't need to be a huge space, but not at all. Give us a 200 cap room, yes. something that mm-hmm. now the students can spend time on ticketing software, and you're going to have the the staging and and have multiple types of stage builds that you can have in that smaller space. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it a seated show versus a general admission show? Who's going to run the lights? Who's going to run the sound? Uh, you know, all of that is really important. And then you throw them into the the mix where you can have a professor say, okay, we're not getting any sound, go fix the issue. Mm-hmm. And you've got to troubleshoot everything. Right. And so um, on top of that, you're going to have the ability to deal with uh, an artist, a tour manager, catering, these other things that uh, exactly. are a part of everyday life that yeah. you're not going to get if you don't have an on-campus venue. So yes, we do have some on-campus venues in the Carrier Dome. We've got a student center that's put on shows before, but it's not like having a five-night-a-week event happening you know, on campus or associated with it. I, I definitely hear what you're saying. Off. I was curious about the uh, festivals that you mentioned that happened in the spring and the fall. How involved are the students in the planning and the actual like working of you know the actual festival to see every aspect happening in real time the booking the contracts you know actually clearing I don't know if you guys stream it like clearing the songs that can be streamed and looking at the demographics of what songs should be played in your you know your area yeah so they have done everything mm-hmm. um, the the only thing they can't do is actually sign the contract. Mm-hmm. But they'll, you know, upstream that to the one or two individuals on campus that do sign the contract. But they do all the negotiation for the talent, um, for the stage size, for all the backline gear. Like they do everything that is needed outside of um, actually, you know, writing the check. And so, and some of that's transportation related. And um, you know, they've had, uh, you know, some artists not show up. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those real learning experiences, you know, when mm-hmm. uh, you've got a, a major hip hop star. I'm not going to throw him out there, but, right. you know, he was supposed <laughs> to fly up. And then he said, oh, no, we're, I'm going to drive. And the car didn't pick him up. And, you know, you deal with the fans picking up rocks and throwing them up the stage because their headliner is not there. Mm-hmm. You know, students had to handle all of that. Mm-hmm. Um so, yes, here the students do everything, which is uh, – it's not like that everywhere, but uh, we are very much hands-on with mm-hmm. this. And, and the, the way that these festivals happen, uh, there's a daytime stage that is sort of just off campus for one. There will be primarily DJs, um, you know, one or two person hip-hop acts, you know, smaller groups – and then that will go from, say, noon to four. And then everything transitions to the Carrier Dome. Doors are at like six. Show starts like seven to ten. And you'll generally have three acts there for, for that. Um, you know, one fun story with one of those festivals was when Kesha 
was here and she was headlining the uh, the Carrier Dome show and had a song, uh, Gold Trans Am, I believe it was. And the day of the show, um, I get a call from one of my students and they're like, do you have any Power Wheels cars? You know, I had two kids mm-hmm. and they were young at this point. And I said, yeah, you know, we got this big black Escalade and – they said, well, would you mind if we spray painted that gold? Kesha wants to drive out on the, sta- on the stage in a gold Power Wheels. And my kids were like, cool, yeah. So they helped uh, with me. We drove that up to the Carrier Dome and uh, you know, students took the spray paint out and she drives it out on stage. They've got my kids there for the show. Uh, she wanted to keep the Escalade. And my, my kids were like – uh, four and six or, or uh, something like somewhere in there. They were young and um, they wouldn't let her. Premium so, price. <laughs> they're like, no, this is ours. And uh, so price. we, we, we left the carrier dome through the, the big airlock, you know, where the, the, you know, the rigs go through and everyone was expecting Kesha to drive out, but it's my two kids in the power wheels. And there's, you know, a couple hundred kids looking for autographs out there. And it was nice. one of the best experiences at uh, an on-campus show that I've had. So that's nice. dope. <laughs> that's hilarious. All right. So let's go back to one other thing you talked about. I've only got a few more questions for you today, but you made a reference to best practices. And of course, you and I, you know, actually, that I've prepared out of the 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 work here at Hustle Like You Broke, a reasonable standards and practices doc for the industry. We've also spoken to Jim Digby about the ESAs, safety standards and practice recommendations. But the reality is this is an industry with an aversion to establishing best practices. So how do you think we get the industry to 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 embrace even just reasonable practices moving forward? I think it's going to be a generational change. And this is where I think the, the education side comes into this, because if you've got the educators stepping in to say, here's how you might approach something, you know, you can then help shape their worldview so that when the time comes, they are making the, the best choice that you can in that, in that scenario. Um, ethics is a big thing and not everyone has a moral compass that is, is driven by the right thing to do. And I think this is a conversation that happens with best practices because there isn't one best practice You know, there's many different ways to go about something, but you've got better choices and you've got worse choices. And, you know, I think that that ethics conversation is one that uh, I know I spend a lot of time talking about that in uh, a classroom setting so that we can sort of make make the students aware that what they decide to do in any scenario makes a difference. Whether it's going back to this uh, headliner doesn't show up. Okay, do you do you try to get somebody else to come through? Do you have uh, an artist do a second set? You know, do you just shut the show down? Like, what do you do in that scenario? You've got a million different choices that you can make. So, what directs you towards one or the other? Um, but in terms of getting the industry 
into what the best practices are, I think it's hard because people are set in how they do things. And changing that for longtime professionals is hard. And I think that's that's not unique to music. It's in any business. When you are used to doing something a certain way, you tend to fall back on the patterns that you've used before. Fair answer. Okay. I feel like what Ulf just said is that the hustle like you broke reasonable standards and practices, Doc, are going to be taught at Syracuse. <laughs> did you hear that, Banks? I heard well, that. I definitely yeah, heard you did, that. right? Yeah, yes, I heard that. absolutely. And because here's the thing. You lay out those best practices, you can have conversation and debate because somebody might say, oh, I don't think that's that's how we should do things. Well, Why? So, yes, I do think documents like that used in a classroom setting provide the perfect opportunity for students to look at and, and evaluate and, and maybe even throw in one as a, a curveball that's not on the list, but you throw out a practice that maybe isn't the best practice to see if they're all like, yes, yes, yes. I like that. That's smart. Ooh. I like Test that. Yes, man. Here are yep. five five statements, one of which is false. Which yep. one is it? Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. There's something to talk about. That might be a curriculum class worth teaching. I'm 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 into it. Okay. Back on track. You told us that you were an athlete. You tell us you still compete to this day. You told us that you went to college originally thinking you were going to be a trainer. Yep. So tell us a little bit about that, but more interesting and specific to this conversation. Tell us about the transfer of skills from what you were studying to what you're doing now in music. Tell us about your choice to transfer. And I ask that for two reasons. One of which is we all know from working in music that athletes want to be musicians, musicians want to be athletes. So there's always that natural back and forth between sports and music. But the other thing is, of course, in a time of COVID, there's so many people that have to find ways or are desperate to find ways to transfer their skills in music to doing something else and struggling to figure that out. So talk to us about transferable skills. Sure. So, you know, as an athlete, I've been racing triathlon for about 10 years now. And it was five years ago that uh, I had the opportunity to go to Nantucket off the coast of Massachusetts and uh, compete in a race, the Nantucket triathlon, where USA triathlon was coming through. Um, since, since this is a podcast, nobody can see me, but I've got one hand. I was born without my left hand. And so USA Paratriathlon was, was there and they put you through a process to classify you based on the degree of ability or disability that you have. And there's you know five or six different categories. And you then as an athlete get to compete against people with similar challenges. So that was 2015. And from there, I really started to pick up racing a lot more and did more than just swim, bike, run. Uh, I got into the duathlon races, which are run, bike, run, multi-sport format. And in 2018 and 2019, I won the national championship for those. 
Um, I race in half Ironman events. So these are 70.3 mile races, a 1.2 mile swim, 56 Whoa. miles on a bike. And then, <laughs> then you run 13.1. And so, um, if for 2017 and 2019, I finished number one in the world for Ironman's, uh, half Ironman rankings. They've got their all world athlete rankings. And so I was number one there. And now I'm trying to get the overall title that's with 140.6 mile races. And that's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 miles on the bike. And then you run a marathon 26.2. So I finished my, finished my first one of those in Lake Placid, uh, in 2019. Wow. And so I, I, I bring this up not to kind of tout the credentials and, and whatnot, but I've set myself some very lofty goals for 2021. You know, I want to win a half Ironman race. I want to win a full Ironman race in my category. I'm getting back into off-road triathlon, and that's the mountain biking and trail running. And so, uh, and I want to win the duathlon national championship again. So I'm looking at trying to get, be ranked number one overall compete in some world championship races and win another national championship. I say that because no sane individual says, this is what I want to do while also holding down a full-time teaching gig at a prestigious university. And I've got two kids and the work that I'm doing with Mia and showmakers on top of that. So the transferable skills, which is really what you asked about, um, for me, it's really been time management and mm-hmm. it's been the ability to persevere through everything because your mind goes to some pretty wild places when you're a hundred miles into a bike ride and then, you know, you've got to go run for five hours. So, you know, the, the ability to be resilient has been something that I have taken across every element of my professional career and, and personal life. Um, I I referenced the fact that I don't think people should make the choices that I make. It's probably not healthy, but my desire to be the best at everything that I do continues to drive me and push me forward. You know, I I have my bike on a bike trainer in my office at the university. Mm. So, you know, I can work for a little while. I can jump on the bike. I can set up my laptop with a microphone and do, you know, voice to, to text transcription. So when I'm, you know, writing something or responding, uh, I can multitask. And the ability to juggle multiple projects and, and manage the time has been the biggest thing that cuts across all of them. Uh, from a logistical standpoint, I do spend a lot of time looking at the Ironman events and their infrastructure. Much like setting up for a festival, this race is set up and you've got, you know, three or 4,000 competitors and you've got an athlete village and you're dealing with security and, and police and road closures and parking situations and food and medical and everything else that you'd see at a large scale event. So for me, um, triathlons is my escape. Because I have a hard time going to concerts these days and just enjoying the show because I look at everything that's around, you know, and so, you know, it's, um, I'm a complex individual and (laughs) I don't turn off very easily. So I always feel like I'm going. Complex individual and self-admittedly 
borderline insane. I feel like I did hear you say no sane individual would do X, Y, Z, but highly accurate. Yes. Appreciate it. Totally good by us. Certainly uh, makes you a welcome addition to this bus. Um, One more from me. When you're not teaching music business and running a hundred thousand fucking miles, you've (laughs) apparently found time to write at least two or three books. One of which may be about TikTok strategy. Yeah. Tell us a little about that. So the TikTok strategy book really came out of um, a conversation I had with one of my classes a little over a year ago. And, you know, it was probably three semesters back. I asked the class how many of them were on TikTok. And out of a class of maybe 30, I think there were two. And I'm like, man, like you guys are studying the music business and social media and you're not on TikTok. Why? And the perception really was, well, you know, we're coming out of musically. It was all dances. I don't want to do dances. It's for kids. It's, you know, and, um, you know, I, I stopped them there. I said, no, this is going to be more than what you think it is. And we have to really look at short form video as a way for us to expand on, um, you know, our, our story arc, because as musicians, as, uh, or anyone in the public eye, you can use that short form video to help tell your story over a long time. And I had, you know, set up my TikTok account just because I was teaching about it. I knew I needed to have the, the hands-on experience. And I thought, I'm going to take my TikTok account and, and use that to document my triathlon because I get to go to places that most people aren't seeing. I'm training in ways that are very different than most athletes. And um, I've had some success, so you might as well see what it looks like to get there. And that led to last summer where every race was canceled. So I shifted, you know, my story arc and, um, I believe I've become a master at at telling jokes about having one hand because I've lived it my entire life. And so I've heard every high five joke or you need a hand or, you know, I I would drop something for you, but you can't pick it up or like, you know, these little, little jokes that people will make and and I I will make them of myself. And so I started doing uh, little videos about that. And had one video go fairly viral. You know, it's, it's near 19 million views. And, um, you know, it was me working on the deck of my old apartment. And having one hand, it's a little tough if I'm going to use a screw to drill that into a deck. So what I will do is I'll hold the screw with my right hand. I'm missing my left. And I'll take my left hand and tap it in. And then it'll just set the screw enough so that I can drive it in. And so I filmed that on, uh, you know, put it on TikTok to show off how I do things. And that one just exploded. And that turned into me making a few other jokes and showing how I do things like, how do you tie your shoes? How do you, you know, uh, clip your fingernails or thread a needle or whatever? And more and more people got interested in that. And so uh, I've continued to tell that story. And ultimately, we'll bring the triathlon side of, uh, of me back into the mix as races start back up this year. And like music, I'm hoping that these events do happen. 
You know, there's a, a race in Arizona at the end of February that I've had my eyes on. And uh, I hope that one goes off because I would love nothing more than to fly out to Arizona, race for a weekend, and then come back to upstate New York where it's snowy. Um, you all started the show with the vaccine rollout. You know, I am fully vaccinated at this point because in New York State, if you were teaching classes in person, you qualified for the, uh, the, the vaccine. And when I saw that, I jumped on board right off the bat. And so I hope more people get it. I feel a little bit safer in my travels. And, uh, you know, I just hope the events are there for me to travel to. Okay. So just to put a little bow on the TikTok strategy, what I heard or the way I interpreted it was be your unique self, put yourself out there and let the social media network work for you as a method of essentially heightening your profile, building your brand as an artist. Yeah. You answered the question cause I didn't. So I appreciate that. You know? <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Okay. That's, that's what I was going for. There. The book itself right. is it, there's the technical side of TikTok. you know, with how do you actually just post a video because some people don't know how to do that. And then there's the strategy behind how frequently will you post or where you're going to place text or what trending sounds you're going to use or what trends you might lean into on the app itself. And then there's the analytics side and taking a look at what's being embraced by your audience and where they're embracing it, whether it's the For You page, which is what you know TikTok serves up as content to others, or are people visiting your profile and seeing you directly, uh, or was it sent to them via a, another means? So you know, looking at all of um, the analytics can help inform what you do. I know I can make jokes that will involve an animal and one hand, and those do very, very well. Um, you have the stitch function. So there was a, a video of a guy in, in Russia with his big brown bear. He's oh, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. touching okay. the, the tongue of the bear, you know, and his hand yeah. is going in his mouth. I stitched like three seconds of that and then, you know, have my hand, my left hand, well, arm, no hand, on screen. And I said something to the effect of, you know, you only get a chance to do this twice, so make it count. And <laughs> so, you know, that there's 6 million views of that one. And I've done a similar joke with a tiger and I've done stuff with a, a chameleon. And you know, so I can find those little jokes. And I, I know that's like it's one one punchline that I've used a few times, but um, I know those work. So when I see my views dip a little bit, well, I'll just slide one of those pieces of content in there. It, it is genuinely me. And I do think, Matt, to your, your point, you have to be genuine. You have to show who you are on, on this app because people will not continue to support you if it's, if it's not a genuine representation of who you are. But I think there's no better platform today to share your music, your personality, uh, your highs and your lows than TikTok right now. And so from a multimedia storytelling pr perspective, that's the center of everything that I do. Outside of that, you've got the blog that's going to happen. You're going to have, uh, I'll have a full YouTube channel for this summer with long form video, obviously Instagram. And uh, I still keep Facebook around, even though I would love to not have Facebook. <laughs> well, Alf, you've been with us for a, a good 90 minutes already. We know you actually have a class to teach this afternoon. But before we let you go, we always ask a series of quick hits to all our guests, short answers, so we can breeze through them and you can get to your class on time. 
First one, which may or may not be applicable, is the first tour that you've ever done. Uh, first tour I ever did was with District 4. They were uh, the first punk band that I worked with. They were all Syracuse University students. Uh, we basically would play from Baltimore through upstate New York, uh, three-piece pop punk band. And uh, it was not a major tour, but tours like that are – they're the ones that stand out to me because you're slugging it out. You're sleeping in a van. You have no money and that shapes you as an individual. Okay. Up next, a favorite tour or moment? Honor Bright, um, getting the call after they stepped off stage uh, Warp Tour to come down and play MTV's TRL uh, two days later. Okay. If there's any one thing about the concert industry you'd like to see us change or do different moving forward, what is it? I want to see some more augmented reality included into uh, stage sets for the next coming years. I like that. I like that. And last but not least, a little softball to get you out of here. Any shout outs? Well, I, I think I have to shout out uh, Showmakers. I know we did uh, a little bit before, but I, I love what they're doing there. Um, and I love that we are a part of this. And I say we because it is we. And, um, you know, Mia is a big, big part of uh, what I'm doing. Um, but, you know, on the musician side, um, I'm going to say a shout out to Ben Howard because the lyrics that he writes have inspired some of the tattoos that I've got. And uh, uh, I live with those. Um, he's somebody that if, if you asked, like, what was your favorite show that you've ever seen? Ben Howard, Central Park. Incredible. Okay. All right. I like that. Brother Banks, any shout outs from you? Uh, I got a shout out. Go back a couple episodes. Christina Rains over at uh, Headcount. She made me feel like I was back on the road again with some swag and I truly appreciate it. It felt like I was at a festival getting some uh, T-shirts and whatnot and some gifts that my family have enjoyed. So I just want to shout out to her. Say thank you. Appreciate you. All right. I like that. I like that. And uh, Christina, we all appreciate you. Brother Hamilton. I want to piggyback on Mr. <sighs> Mr. Banks. Shout out because uh, that little random package showed up. I'm like, what, what is this? Who knows why yeah. I live? <laughs> but um, it, was am- it was awesome. And, uh, you know, shout out to, you know, no slicing. Keep hitting straight. Shoot straight as well. <laughs> But you got to stay balanced on both sides. There it is. Ulf, you've been great. Showmakers, Christina, you and I talked about it before, but uh, I'm glad that you got the shout out from everybody here. We're having fun. Another great one in the can. Hust like you broke. Check us out on Instagram, HLUB podcast. Ulf, what is your TikTok? What are your socials? Uh, everything's at 70.3 with uh, 70 point written out as words and then the number three. Well, we appreciate you. We hope your students listen, check it out and appreciate what we do and what you are doing for them. We look forward to working with you, building out that pipeline, getting more students engaged in live music, elevating the discourse, making it happen, coming out of this coronacation getting back on the road doing the things we love 
And uh, on that note, we thank you all and good night. Hey, this is Tech Support. Want to make sure you never miss the newest from Hustle Like You Broke? Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at HLUB Podcast. And sign up for our mailing list by going to hustlelikeyoubroke.com slash join. You'll get updates about new episodes, bonus content, exclusive offers, and information on how to become a part of the music industry. Thanks for listening.